Jesus, I thank you so much for dying for me on the cross, Lord. I have um, committed sin. I have uh, offended the God of the universe who created everything. Uh, And yet, God, you forgive freely, powerfully. Uh, Lord, you grant us so many blessings. And Lord, I just pray that you would reveal to us something about that today. You would show us a little bit of your heart, Lord God, because um, sometimes we get it mixed up. Sometimes we treat this all like a job or like a tradition. And I know, God, my Father, that it is not that way for you. This is, this is something so much deeper than what we think it is. Lord, I pray you open our eyes, Lord God, even as Elisha prayed that, uh, that the eyes of his servant Gehazi would, would be opened and he would be able to see the spiritual realities around him. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, today, this message is called, What Does He Get Out of the Deal? What Does He Get Out of the Deal? So I want to tell you a little bit about me, just to start off here. I am a sucker for the musical montage in a movie, especially a love, a love movie. You know, those chick flicks where it's, you know, the guy and the girl are falling in love. And at the end, maybe even at the end of the whole movie, they kind of, it kind of does this musical montage. And it's always this, you know, sultry acoustic guitar, doo, 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 or maybe a piano, and someone just singing, I will remember. And it, it, it goes, it starts to do flashbacks of the different stages in their relationship or in their life. And, and it, was, it always starts with the, oh, the first sight, and oh, he, he really loved her and she really hated him. And, and maybe then it, they, they got connected and then they had the big fight, and that's a. a part in the, in the musical montage, and I'm a sucker for these, and I always, at the end, it always gets dusty in the room. I don't understand why. I'm just like, oh, it's okay. She, my wife's like, are you okay? Are you crying? I'm like, no, it's just dusty. <sighs> why does that work? Why does it suck me in? And I feel like such I don't even know what to call it, but I feel like, why are you a man? Why are you so emotionally affected by a chick flick? Why? I'm so... Ah. But it works. Because most people in the world understand love. They understand relationships and, and, and the ups and downs and how that creates a bond between people. And it's just like, oh, so sweet. You even, you're even excited for the two fake people you just watched on TV. That they're in love. You, you, we believe in the idea of love so much that we're cool even if it's cartoon characters that fall in love. I watched Phineas and Ferb with my sons and there's an episode where their mom and dad, like it tells their story of how they fell in love and I'm like, oh, sweet. Anyway. Even when they're fake, love stirs our hearts and our affections and even our bodies. It's just, I, so, yesterday I had kind of a little movie marathon with my wife. Our kids were out of town. Shh. And we had uh, a little movie marathon of romantic 
comedies, so I'm fresh. And one of them, I got a little dusty. I was like, oh, man. And I, and I thought, I'm like, man, I feel all hot, and my, my head is like kind of pounding. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying not to show anyone, because Jeremy was in the room too, because it would have been weird. And, uh, but it affects your body too. You know, love, I, I found, I did a little search and I found nine ways that, that love affects us in these love stories and romance and stuff. The first one is love makes you dumb. <laughs> Studies have shown that people who are passionately in love are less able to focus and perform tasks that require their attention. <laughs> uh, it says here, when you beca- just become involved in a romantic relationship, you'll probably find it harder to focus on things because you spend a large part of your cognitive resources thinking about your beloved. I think that's true. I think it's true. I don't know about dumb. I don't know if I picked that word, but focused. I think we're focused. Love makes us able to focus passionately. Maybe on if you love your job, you're able to focus on that. But it's nothing compared to relational bliss. The number two thing I found was love makes you high. Scientists have... Uh, MRI scans to prove it. It says here, uh, when you fall in love, the same neural system in your brain that is linked to cocaine addiction becomes active, giving you that feeling of euphoria. Whoa. That's why you feel intense elation when you're in love. It's like high, it's like being high, okay? Uh, Number three, love can make you less vulnerable to pain. Did you know that? Forget Vicodin. All you need is some romance, this says. It, turned out, it turns out the same areas of the brain activated, activated by feelings of intense love are the same areas that, dr- uh, that drugs use to reduce pain. In fact, you, you, can, uh, you can get better just by holding the hand of your love. Do you know that really affects you? My wife says all the time, hold me, hold my hand. And I'm like, why? Now I know. <laughs> she loves me. And I must have caused her pain. <laughs> but even if I'm the one causing her pain, I can help her by holding her hand. I'd love that. Love makes you walk slower. That's interesting. Number five, it changes your heartbeat to match your special someone's. Your heart, you, if you walk hand in hand with your love, your heartbeat will actually start to match them when your love so romantic. It makes women speak higher pitched in their in their voice, their octaves of their voice. Uh, I think that's interesting. It makes you blind, or what this says here is, some studies show that people in committed relationships who have been actively thinking about their partner actually avert their eyes from attractive members of the opposite sex unknowingly. It's called an act of unconscious attentional bias. That's fancy. Man, as we're walking along with the Lord sometimes, I just, you know, sometimes you just are, are in love with Him and sin loses its appeal. I see that. We're, that's kind of the track that we're going on today. Number eight, it turns you into a daredevil. We've all heard tales of the knight in the shining armor risking it all for his beloved. And studies show that behavior, risk-taking behavior in men increases exponentially when they're in love. Sometimes I think that's showing off, but... And then we all know, number nine, it makes your pupils grow bigger. We have to get away. 
in our church, and I know that a lot of us grew up in the church, and we have to get away from a thinking that creeps into our minds and in our hearts, that church is about theology, that Christianity is about going to church. We have to get away from that. It's a poison to our lives. It's a poison to your heart. And we have to change the way that we think about Jesus and Christianity and the world and, and, and church, going to church. This cannot be what we do on Sundays because it's what we do on Sundays. And I, I, I go into all this detail about love and love stories and that feeling of love because that's what it is for Jesus when you come to church, when you spend time with him, when you open up your Bible in the morning, that's what he gets out of it. And we have to get to the place where that's where we're at too, where we're reciprocating those feelings and those emotions. God gave you emotions on purpose. You might think, I hate my emotions. I'm angry, sad, and mad all at the wrong times, and love, I love the wrong things, and my emotions always drive me wrong. Well, yes, they could. But when you get into a right relationship with God, when things are good and okay between you and the Lord, your emotions are powerful and a blessing and a huge window to your soul. Okay, so emotions are not the enemy, but they're a key to what's going on in your soul. And what we've been studying here is we've been studying about grace, and, and we talked last week about the forgiveness of sins and the riches of His grace that have been freely given to us, and we've, we've gone in depth about all that's been given to us. And today, we're, we're talking about what does He get out of it? What does He get out of all this stuff that He gives to us? Why? What's the point for it? On His end, like from His perspective, what's the deal? Well, let's look at our, we're, we're still in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, 8. Let's start, start reading there. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've studied the blood. We've studied the forgiveness. According to the riches of his grace, we, we studied that. Now, verse 8, it says, Which, this grace, this word that sums up all that he's given us, this grace, which he made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Grace is all about him. It's all about him. You may notice some churches, when you go into them, they say, now this is what you can do, and this is what you need to do, and this is how you can blah, blah, blah. It's, it's very you-focused. But when we study the Word, and, and we look here, and we talk about grace, grace is all about Him. We can look for ages and ages about the benefits of God's grace today for us, we will look for ages and ages about that, but we're going to discover what, why Jesus is into grace, why he is into it. See, grace, it says here, he made it to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. 
Because grace abounding towards us actually demonstrates the wisdom and prudence of God, as well as granting wisdom and prudence to the believer who receives it. So I was looking at this and I was thinking, wisdom and prudence. Okay, I I can kind of think about what those mean in my mind, but I really think they mean the same thing, don't they? It's like, oh, that kid showed a lot of wisdom. That kid showed a lot of prudence. Uh, Isn't that the same thing? In my mind, they are. So I had to get into the, uh, the original language, the Greek here, to figure out what the difference was. And so I want to teach that to you because it's really amazing, actually. Wisdom means insight. And prudence means to have understanding. All right? So I thought, that's the same thing. So I had to look in at the dictionary, the Greek dictionary of those two words didn't help me at first. So I had to go to the vines. You ever heard of vines? Vines is a different Greek dictionary that, that kind of teaches you uh, a, a little bit deeper of the meanings of the words. And so I'm going to teach you what that says, okay? So the, uh, the word, uh, let me pronounce it right here. It is friend. Friend is the word for uh, wisdom, okay? And it means, um, no, sorry, Sophia is the word for wisdom. So Sophia is the Greek word, that the first one he used here. And it says it's it's the insight into the true nature of things. And phronesis is the word for prudence. And it's the ability to discern between modes of action and to view the results, So Sophia, the first word he says relating to grace, is the theoretical aspect of grace. It's the idea of grace and what it can do for you, like with your standing. And phronesis phronesis is more of the practical view of it. All right, so Jesus is telling us here that he made grace to abound towards us in wisdom and prudence, meaning he made it to abound towards us not just in the theoretical way, but theoretically and in our standing and in heavenly things and us being able to be seated in heavenly places and all these almost imaginary blessings. Those are real, he says, but also in the practical realm as well, in your day-to-day life. So his grace stretches not only from just an idea, but to the practical outcome in our lives. And that's what it's describing here. So I'll read to you. It says, in Sophia... That first word for wisdom, it says, we understand the true nature of our relationship with Jesus. The ability to stand before him as innocent from any sin by faith in Christ. Being justified by faith. This is something you cannot see right now, but you can understand it with Sophia. That word Sophia. It's, it's like a theory. You can know it's true but a certain amount of it is unseen or unrealized at the moment. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. And then in Pronesis, he says, we see the literal, tangible power of God unleashed in our lives. Our hearts change, our actions follow, and the aftermath is an undeniable evidence to God's power working in my life through grace. A life change is the most amazing witness of his grace. So the second one, the practical aspect of it, it's real. It does happen and it's a, it's a it's a big we see it happen in our lives and in the lives of people 
around us and is such a huge witness, people can say, well, I don't believe your God is up in heaven. Okay, I understand. I can't see heaven either. Doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean I don't believe it, but I can see why you don't believe it. But let me show you something that you will never be able to deny, and that's that I am different. I used to be lost, and now I'm found. I used to have a heart that only desired what I wanted, what my flesh wanted. And now, God's grace has practically changed me because of the Sophia, because of the standing I have with him, because of all the invisible stuff that you can't see. I have a physical change in my life. I'm actually different. And that's how these two things work together. So he says, he made this grace abound towards us in all wisdom. So all that invisible stuff is all yours. All that grace has abounded towards you. And then all the prudence, all the practical stuff, all, all of it is yours. Your life can be completely changed. I love that. It's not just the idea of being right with God and then sometime in the future I get to enjoy that. It's that I get to be right with God now and I get to please Him now. I get to live for Him now. It's not just looking right now with no vision to the future. It's both. It's everything we need now and later. That's why now and later are godly candy. And you'll always remember that now. God's grace is for now and later. It completely works. There's no partial work of God's grace. And that's why I love it, because grace is the way God works all the time. There's not another way. He just lets this way abound and abound more towards us. And if you think you're testing the limits of God's resources, you're not. There are no limits to his resources. So then he says in verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. This whole grace relationship, which uh, is called in technical terms the new covenant, and in the Bible, and as you're reading in Hebrews and in Jeremiah 31, you'll see this new covenant term tossed around. What that means is grace. This whole idea that God just gives you grace. It was a big mystery before Jesus came and explained it to us, and Paul further explained it in the epistles. It was a big mystery. But we can look back with this wisdom and, and prudence that we've been given, and we can see that the, his will and desire has been clearly laid out for us from a long time ago, even before Jesus, even before the law came. Even back to a guy named Melchizedek, which is what we studied yesterday at the, at the men's Bible study. It was a really deep time of looking at how Christianity predates Judaism. Because our priest is a, from the order of Melchizedek. This is deep stuff, so if you don't get it, that's okay. But our priest is from the order of Melchizedek, and he lived 400 years before Abraham was even born, and Abraham's sons were the sons of Levi and the Levitical priesthood and everything the Jewish religion is based on. So we talked about that yesterday. But God's heart, the same thing, has, is predating. It's old, it's it's been revealed over time in Scripture that God has a desire to do things this way. What does he not desire? What do you think God doesn't desire? 
Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord um, as great of delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to, and, uh, to heed than the fat of rams. So they had this whole system set up where they could sin, and, and if they sinned, the people of Israel, they could kill a, a goat or a ram or um, rams, uh, uh, um, any kind of animals, birds, and all kinds of stuff. And this system was put in place to cover over their sin. And they got the idea that it made God happy when they covered over their sin. But Samuel, he's so wise, and he says, Guys, God's heart doesn't rejoice when you make a sacrifice of a bull or ram. That's not what, if you just would have not sinned in the first place, that would have made him happy. See, obedience is what, what God was looking for. And then in Hosea 6.6, 6, we have a similar statement. It says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than the burnt offerings. I desire mercy. I desire something tangible that I can relate to you in more than sacrifices, more than what you think you can do for me. I would rather engage with you with this thing called mercy than for you to think that killing a, a, a bull works for our relationship. Hmm. And then in Hebrews 10.8, he says, and he's quoting Isaiah, previously saying, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offerings for sin, you did not desire and had no pleasure in them which were offered according to the law. See, that law, the old covenant, it had all these sacrifices in it, but God's saying, that didn't make me happy. I didn't have any pleasure in it. But the new covenant this new covenant of grace, what makes it so much better, what makes it so much more awesome for you and for me, is that it actually provides for the things that the Lord desires, that, he, that please Him. Pleasing God. Making Him feel that love. Making Him feel loved. The new covenant does that. Grace, this whole idea. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And in Jeremiah 31, we have God's description for us and, and lesson for us about this new covenant and how, how it provides for these things. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, easy to remember, and this is a real important part of the Bible because this is written where? It's in the Old Testament. This is, this is five, six hundred years before Jesus came. But it's explaining to us, it's showing us God's heart and what makes him happy, what pleases the Lord. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, this, this grace covenant, this thing where he will do this. In verse 32, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So this is the way that God says makes him happy. This is what brings joy to his heart. Is if he says, I can just take care of everything. I gave you this list of ten rules. You guys didn't do an awesome job. You really kind of messed that one up. No human being ever kept them. And those rules, they're valid. They work. If you did those rules, you'd live by them, God says. But you can't. And that doesn't make me happy. So you know what? Here we go. I'm going to wipe it all clean. I'm going to fulfill the law for you. And so I can just write my law in your mind and on your heart. And instead of it being this list of ten rules that you keep that's outside you, now it's, it, it becomes your desire to obey. You become changed. And you're just a different person. And that's what he does through the power of his Holy Spirit. And a big part of that was I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The sin problem, it only existed because there was the list of ten rules. If the list is done away with, the sin is forgiven. The sin goes away. So that's why he did it this way. That's why it can make him happy. That's why you and me can make him happy. Is because of this new covenant of grace. See, a big part of this mystery of this, this covenant would be opened up to all the people that, that, that God didn't just have a, a heart for the nation of Israel, but it would be opened up to all the Gentiles, us pork-eating non-Jewish Gentiles. That's us. And, and that was a big part of the mystery. So when we're, when we're looking at Ephesians, that he made the mystery of his will known, that's a big part of it. Then God is happy when we can live with him without sin getting in the way. Grace does that and does it very well, both in standing and practically. So that, that first word, that wisdom, that theoretical sin stood in our way there. We couldn't stand before a holy God in heaven and come before his presence and pray. Even praying it didn't work. But yet grace wipes away all our sin in that realm. And then practically, grace fixes you up, changes your heart. This new covenant, it's designed into it that it works that way. And here's the thing. We go about our life and we're like, okay, I can understand the practical or the theoretical aspect. I can understand I stand before God sinless because Jesus died and took all my sin away. All right? But I want to sin. How do I stop this side? How do I fix the practical side of me that's still sinning? And you know what we think? I need to try harder. I need to get down and really find it inside me. The strength to, to stop that. Or I need to put up boundaries around me and walls so I don't go near those things that I shouldn't touch that I know are bad for me. And we think that all these things that we do are sacrifices make God happy. And he says, bro, sister, I have provided for the practical and the theoretical. The theoretical, you stand before me, you get that. But the practical too, I will give you. 
Well, how do I get that? The same way you got the other. It was just given to you. How? You asked. Oh, but that seems too easy. I know. That's why it makes me happy. I'm an easy God. I will help you. I will do it for you. That's what grace does. And it's according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Back in Ephesians, if you're not there already. In Ephesians 1, he says, it's according to this whole plan, this whole grace relationship. It's according to the good pleasure that he purposed in himself. Why would God be so gracious? When you start to understand the amazing depths of grace, freely lavished on all those who believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross, you might start to wonder why God does this. What does he get out of this deal? And it says here, it's his good pleasure. Which in, the word, in Greek is the word eudokio. I like that. I like saying it, so I told you. And the definition is it implies a gracious purpose, a good object being in view with the idea of a resolve showing the willingness with which the resolve is made. See, here's a few verses that we're going to look at real quick that show us this word good pleasure and how the Bible defines it. Because the Bible actually does a great job. Sorry, I had a lot of bacon this morning. Um, The Bible does a good job. I love being a Gentile. All right. The Bible does a great job teaching us what it means when it says something. So I I was like, man, what is the good pleasure he's talking about here? What is it that's making God so happy to give us all this grace. And I, I looked at a few verses. One is in Luke 12, verse 32. And this is just a beautiful little verse. And it says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What really makes God happy? That you're like his little sheep. His little dumb sheep that just go about. And he loves being a shepherd. And, and he loves giving Giving is the language of grace. Giving is what's always related to the new covenant. It's never the word earn. Never in Christianity should you hear the word you earn something. We are nothing. But he gives everything. And so gift is not worked for, but it's given to one that you love. God God desired... Did you ever give a gift to someone you hate? Just a question. I don't know. If you have, tell me afterwards. I'd like to hear about it. Maybe like it was poisoned or something, I don't know. <laughs> but it says here, God desires to give you the kingdom. The kingdom, his, his whole deal. He desires to give it to you. In other words, he's happy that you're on his team. He's not disappointed that you're the one he has to give his entire inheritance to. He's happy about it. It's his good pleasure, it says. And then Philippians 2.13 says, where it is God that works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? He's working in you. If anyone is doing work around here, it's God. If anyone is working for wages, it's the Lord, not us. He's working in you to change your heart and actions to give you that practical grace. And he gets his desires done by this grace. These things are not just accomplished by trying to keep, like I've explained, by trying to keep the law. Because if his work got accomplished by us trying to keep the law, 
he wouldn't have needed to die on the cross. That's how his work got accomplished. And he could have just said, here's the law. See ya. When you die, I'll be up in heaven and I'll receive you to me if righteousness could have come by the law. But it didn't. And then it says, here's an interesting one. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, it has this phrase, good pleasure again. And it says, therefore, we also pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. See, it's not our works, but his works that accomplish this grace. And look, it says he counts you worthy. You didn't earn any worthiness to receive this grace. He counts, he does it for you. And it's his goodness, not your own. It's his power, not your own. And all the works that have been done, all the labor that was done to make you holy, it's totally yours when you just have faith. When you just believe in his grace, he gives it to you. So grace is, is, to, is what we're supposed to be growing in. Not, not law or our obedience to the law. It's to be our focus and our centerpiece. Why? Because it's his focus. And it, it ties in very closely to what he gets out of the deal. What he gets out of this grace is one word, and that's relationship. That's what he gets. Turn with me back to the book of Jeremiah. We were in 31. I should have had you keep your finger, but I didn't, so you'll have to exercise your fingers again by turning to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And many of you may know this, this verse already. Some of you might be your favorite verse. But this, this leads us down a path of understanding. Because some people only read the first part of this, this chapter, this verse, this phrase. And, uh, and they don't get to the second part. And the second part has the real gems, the real treasures of this scripture, I believe, are in the, the second half of it. So Jesus, he does everything by grace so that he can have relationship. Look at what it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. The thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. Give the language of grace like we just talked about. A lot of people stop right there and they say, awesome, that encourages me so much when I've just had someone in my life die or I've just been laid off my job or I'm going through a difficult time or I'm sick. This helps me. I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, that they're thoughts of peace and not of evil. I love that. That he's on my side, that he's, he's going to give me a future and a hope. Those are things I need, that I rejoice in, that I love. But then he writes verse 12. And this is his heart behind it. He's saying, Don't, the purpose is, is awesome. I love you. I got a plan for you. I'm going to take care of you. But look at where this takes us. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And I will tell you everything that you need to know. <laughs> no one? 
No one says, no, that's not what the Bible says. Pastor, you can, you're allowed to. I give you permission. Say, no, that's not what it, it doesn't say that. It does not say that. Then you'll call upon me and go and pray to me and I will take care of everything right away. Ah, good job, BK. No, that's not what it says. It says you will call upon me and you will go and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. And you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. You don't got to worry about that. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. You don't got to worry about that, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from the place to the place which I have caused you to be carried away captive. He's in this. Not for all those things. Those are great. The consequences of following the Lord are awesome. There's blessings there. But what does God care about? He cares about you. He cares about you praying to him. You calling upon him. You searching for him with all your brain. No. With all your might. No. With all your heart. He wants your, your evenings with him to be the musical montage of your day with him. And you want just a little tear to come out and drip down. And God, we've had such a great day. All these different things. And I was in a traffic jam and I called upon your name and the car split. It was awesome. And then they crashed into me and it was terrible. By the way, what, what was with that hundred car pileup yesterday? Terrible. We should, we should, we'll pray for that at the end because there was a fa- someone that died and um, it's very sad. But every day, what God cares about is that you call upon him, you go and pray to him, and he says he listens to you. He listens to you. In Psalm 149, verse 4, it says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. You guys are what is, it's all about for the Lord. He gets so happy when you pray, when you spend time with him. What is this? In Ephesians 1, 8, what is the, 1, 9, what is the purpose that he has purposed in himself? Why does he do this all? Because he's decided he loves you. And you make him happy. And he, lists, he loves to listen to you. If, you. if you go to Book of Revelation, chapter 6 and 7, I believe, there's a scene up in heaven that's quite amazing. Maybe 8. Um, and there's, there's this bowl of incense up in heaven. And it says that this bowl of incense is the prayers of all the saints. And it's a great picture of how our prayers are assembled before the Lord there. And he takes this bowl... And it says, he silences heaven. Now, the previous chapters, there's been glorious praise happening and angels singing and saints singing and people throwing crowns. And it's been an amazing, loud thing. And God loves it. He's dancing around. It's awesome. But for this, he has a bowl. And he, said, and he silences heaven. And he says, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. 
He made everyone shut up because he wanted to listen to the prayers of his saints. He didn't want to even be distracted by his own praise, which is perfect, glorious. He didn't even want how awesome he is to distract from his attention he gives to you. He looks at you in the eye and he listens to your heart. And he silenced heaven for a half hour. Then an angel comes and throws the thing down and there's lightnings, thunderings, and earthquakes, which means your prayers work. So call down lightning. But he loves it. He loves your prayers. He loves when you spend that time. In Zephaniah 3.17, there's this awesome verse. It's just kind of a little treasure tucked away in this little book of Zephaniah. It says, The Lord, your God, in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And the term rejoice over you in Hebrew literally means spin around dancing. God says, I rejoice in you so much that I, I spin around dancing. You guys, have, you guys have seen kids so excited. They're just like, yeah! <laughs> My son Jordan prays that he stops bumping into walls. I guess he, has this, he says at school he's always bumping into walls. But then one day he was, he was like happy and excited and spinning around and he bumped into a wall and I said, hey, you want to pray about that? And he's no, no, I was just happy. But, you know, God spends, I just, that language in Hebrew is just amazing. So poetic over his love for us. Now in Romans chapter 8, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. This will be the last little verse that we read, but Romans chapter 8, verse 37 You guys, most of you know this verse. You might have it memorized. You've read it many, many times before. But when I read it with the understanding that this is the purpose he's purposed in, his, in, in himself, this is what he gets out of the deal, I just, I'm blown away. So this is Romans 8.37, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I was studying this, and I was thinking about how much God loves me, and how much he wants me to, to understand that, you know, he's given me these verses you know, where it's just so clear his love for me. And then I was watching those movies and my heart was stirred for these fake people. A werewolf and a vampire. <laughs> and their love. And I was like, oh, love. And I thought, really, I thought, I have no clue how much God loves me. And I, I really don't love him the right way back. I, I love him, but I need to love him more. He is passionate for me. In fact, 
You know, he says, nothing will ever be able to separate us, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing. That's the very clear, literal way to understand it, and I get that. I get it in my brain, but I want to get it in my heart. And so I, I spent some time, and I read through the book of the Song of Solomon. Have you guys ever read through that book? It's crazy. It's nutty. I have no idea what it's talking about, 90% of the time. But, in fact, there's, if you Google it, there's this picture of what, like, he describes, like, he like, is trying to compliment his girl, and he's like, your, your tower's like, the, your, your neck is like the Tower of Babylon, and your teeth are like flocks of goats, and your hair is like a flock of goats, and, and, and someone drew a picture of what this would look like, and it's utterly horrifying <laughs> what this person drew, and it's like, oh, awful. But back then, I guess, that's what was pretty. So, they hadn't invented deodorant, I don't think. Anyway. <laughs> I, don't, I have this joke in my head, so I'm going to tell you. So someone is like, oh, is, is wearing makeup okay in the Bible? And this old pastor said, if the barn needs, needs painting, paint it. <laughs> I don't know why it's in my head, but... <laughs> in the Song of Solomon, you know, the... the the way it's written is it's, it's a love story between the guy and, and his girl, Solomon, and this Shulamite girl. But the allegorical meaning of it is it's really a love letter between Jesus and us. It was written, and it gives us tremendous insight into his heart, how he feels. And there's a couple things I read in there, and I, I won't even have you turn to them. You guys can go explore these things on your own. But in one part, he says... Turn away, my beloved, for one look of your eyes has overcome me. And it's very poetic language, but when I think of Jesus saying that to me, it's very, it, it stirs my emotions. Like, what do you mean, one look at me? I hate looking at myself in the mirror. And he says, one look of your eyes overcomes me with emotion. Look away. Whoa. That's, that's passionate love he has for us. And then at the end, you know, he's, he's talking about, oh, he's talking about this bad night this, this girl has. She's talking and she's like, I, I slept and my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. So she's like having a hard time sleeping this one night. And, and she's thinking, man, I, I'd like to spend time with my, my love. I, my heart loves him. You know, I love him. And I think I hear his voice. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He likes adjectives for me. For my head is covered with the dew and my locks with the drops of the night. He's saying, I'm out in the middle of the night. I have something for you. I, I'll spend time with you in the middle of the night. That's how much I love you. <laughs> Would you get up with your wife in the middle of the night just to hang out? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Well, she's, she's more tempted in her response. She says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them again? How many times do we let those things become the excuse for us? 
in, in spending time with the Lord as he calls to us with his voice and he knocks on the lattice of our windows, whatever that means, has something to do with your devotions. Go look it up. As he calls us, how many times do we say, yeah, I've taken off my robe. I've already taken my shirt off. I don't want to get up and sit on the couch. I'm in my boxers. Or, I've already washed my feet. How can I defile them again? My wife makes me wash my feet before I get into bed. Does that make sense? She doesn't like the dirt in the... Anyway, probably too much for you guys to know, but... Anyway, we so oftentimes don't get it. That God loves. And she says here, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. And eventually I arose and opened for my beloved. But he was gone. And she weeps and she's sad, and she goes out looking for him. She finds him. Big long story drama. But God loves you. Jesus truly loves you. And what he gets out of this whole deal in Ephesians, the good purpose, he's purpose in your heart, why he's doing this whole thing based on grace, is because he just loves you. He has so much passion for you. And there was a, there was a, a um, revival in the early 1900s on the East Coast. And there was different papers and newspapers and that would go and do articles on it. And they'd write these articles and they'd be like, what's going on here? And they'd interview. And they didn't say in these articles that people were saved. Although hundreds of people were saved. They didn't say that they were born again. Although we know they were born again. But there was one phrase that they continually used in these newspaper articles and internet things back in the early 1900s. That was a joke, by the way. It was a good one, too. Time frames, history joke. Let's go. He said, they said, these people were, one phrase they kept using, they were seized by the power of a great affection. Seized by the power of a great affection. We have to change the way we grew up thinking about church. Till it's that. If we think about church at all, that this is our duty, or this is what we need to do, or what we have to do, you have, we have, missed it. I pray that we are people who are seized by the power of a great affection. That there is deep affection for Jesus in this place.